This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Today's guest steals pretty much every scene he's in, like this one from I Love You Man with Paul Rudd. No. Hey, Peter! I got an extra ticket to the Galaxy game tonight! You know what? Thanks, man. I, I'm sorry. I can't... I got a, uh, uh, function. I got season ticks. I'll get you on the flip side. Here we go. Come on. Hey, thanks on. a lot for hooking me up with Elmo over there. That was a blast. What? That guy's cool. Here we go. Here we go. Come on. Push it out. This is The Last Laugh. I'm Matt Wilstein from The Daily Beast, and my guest on today's show is the always hilarious Joe Lotrulio. You may know Joe from more than two decades of comedy performances in films like Wet Hot American Summer, Superbad, Pineapple Express, and so many others. For the past seven years, he's played Officer Charles Boyle on Brooklyn Nine-Nine. This month, Joe is probably going to surprise a lot of fans by taking on a rare dramatic role as former Attorney General Jeff Sessions in Showtime's new two-part series, The Comey Rule. I got a chance to see the whole thing, and it's fantastic. I have been such a huge fan of Joe's work going all the way back to his early days as a member of the majorly influential sketch group, The State. So it really was a lot of fun to get to chat with him for this episode. And yes, we did get into the big conversation about how Brooklyn Nine-Nine plans to rethink what it means to be a cop show after the George Floyd protests. So let's do it. Here's me with Joe Low Trulio. Hey, Matt, how are you? Good, how are you doing? I'm great. I'm really excited to talk to you and meet you and uh, a little nervous. I haven't really done one of these podcasts in a while. (laughs) So I have to tell you, I was surprised but excited when I saw your name pop up on this announcement about the the Comey rule playing Jeff Sessions, Ah, uh which uh, was unexpected (laughs) casting, I think. Indeed. But it was pretty fun. What was your reaction when you found out you'd be playing Jeff Sessions? I similarly, I also was quite surprised and asked Billy Ray, the writer and director, I said, how, how are we going to do this? I mean, I'm flattered to be working with you. What's the plan? And he said, trust me, we're going to present this in a way that isn't a cartoon. And he did. I was surprised also. I wanted to know what kind of like makeup and everything he wanted to use because, I mean, I'm no, it's not like I'm <laughs> super uh, ugly, uh, but I'm also, <laughs> I mean, super good looking, but I'm also not 70 years old. So he's like, well, you know, we're going to, we're going to try to make it as realistic as they did. And I have 
have to say that the hair and makeup people did just a wonderful, wonderful job. I think he's got about 25 years on you. So they had to, they had some work to That's do. That's right. <laughs> you know, my wife's family, her, her mom's side anyway, lives in Alabama and her aunt actually is, they're deep in the heart of it. They're deep seated Republicans. And her aunt is actually a friends or at least knows Jeff Sessions. And so one of the things I had fun doing is calling her up when I got the part to say, you know, Aunt Brenda, guess <laughs> who you're very liberal progressive <laughs> nephew-in-law is going to play. She got a big kick out of it. So um, we'll see what ha- how she feels after the after the movie. Yeah, I'm really curious to see what people think of it because it was it's kind of been like this movie that's been in the works for a while and I just got to see it, but it's premiering as we're talking in a week or a couple weeks. Yeah. So you, you did see it? Yeah, I got to see the whole thing. Oh, and, nice. And I really enjoyed it. I feel like I was immersed in all of that stuff as it was happening, but still yeah. learn new things. And it's just very surreal to kind of see it all play out. Sort of the scenes that you heard about in the, you know, maybe James Comey's testimony or in his book, but actually seeing them them play out on screen is pretty cool. It was really exciting to be on set and kind of watch Brendan Gleeson and, and Jeff Daniels just go to town. It's such a masterclass watching those guys. You've seen it. I felt like, you know, they both did wonderful work, but Brendan Gleeson in particular, the way he kind of brought his impression of, of Trump was really powerful, I felt. It's understated and quite scary in a sense and doesn't really do a, a caricature of the man. So it was great to see them work. Yeah. What was it like specifically to act opposite uh, Brendan Gleeson when he was all made up as Trump and you're really like, did it feel like you were there with, with the man himself? In a way, yeah. I mean, you just watched an actor really kind of really focus and get ready to bounce back and forth with the rest of his of his act. Like and Jeff as well, you're just kind of watching. You're just watching their focus, and you're just so impressed as an actor. You're like, ah, oh, there's so much to learn here. And then afterwards, you know, after the take was done, you know, Brendan would be, uh, you know, back uh, as the normal normal guys. And with Jeff, Brendan is such a vibrant personality and and friendly. And it's such a contrast from going the small work that he's doing in the movie to his great brogue and just enthusiasm that that he has. It's it was it was wonderful. Yeah, it's interesting to see. This is the first, I think, that I've seen dramatic portrayal of Trump. There have been so many comedic ones over the past few years, whether it's, you know, SNL or all of the late night hosts do their own Trump impressions and, you know, just various things. The the president show that was on Comedy Central. So what did you make of that and sort of seeing this dramatic portrayal of Trump that, as, and what that's like? It was refreshing to see it put in a new context. You know, it's very easy because of the actions of this president to really kind of go after the ridiculous nature of things he says and does. And then to kind of instead concentrate on this very small human element of him, if that is there, it's in all of us, right? To see it portrayed in in such a way that's very exact and that you're able to kind of put his actions, especially with two years, we're two years ahead of it now, put those actions, uh, see them in a different context. And I think Brennan portraying him like that allowed us to do that. If that makes any sense, I know I'm jumping around a little bit, but like, yeah, no, I think I was thinking, you know, in my head, comparing it to Alec Baldwin's portrayal on SNL, which is so, I mean, it's so over the top and it makes every, it makes all of it into a joke, which on the one hand is good and can be really funny. But on the other hand, there's some risk there, I think, in sort of acting like this is all a funny thing that's happening. Yeah. The dramatic portrayal really enhances the gravity of the situation in the White House right now. And I think you kind of have to have that 
to kind of underscore the bigger picture of what really is happening. And so in order uh, to kind of see that clearly, I think you need a smaller dramatic portrayal. Like what really are the motivations and the true human flaws of this person that's allowing this to happen? And so I think that's really important. And I think there's been enough time, these events that are portrayed in the movie Comey and, and the election of the president, that we have some distance to really kind of see the beginnings of why it, it's falling apart now, how this person kind of led this administration and the mistakes that were being made that kind of have put us in this situation that we're in now of distrust and disinformation and, and abuse of power. Yeah. And I'm glad that it is coming out before the election. I know when it was first, there were some rumors that maybe it was going to not come out until after the election, which I think would have been a, a disservice to the film, but also to the to the country, because I think people do you know need to see this. Yeah, well, it's I, I'm yeah, I'm glad that it's also coming out a lot earlier as well, just to give again that perspective We'll see what happens. I'm a yeah. little nervous. <laughs> yeah, me too. For you playing Sessions, what kind of went into that performance and, and research and, and watching him? Or how did you approach it? I approached it by trying to do a an impression that was, you know, accurate, but not too big. I watched some videos of him on YouTube and listened to his cadence. And like I said, a lot of my relatives are from Alabama. And so I'm, I've heard that accent a, a number of times. But I didn't really look into the life of Jeff Sessions. I'm familiar enough with that. And so I try to approach it just from a person. If a person's in this position of being an attorney general and he's being asked to do certain things that you're not supposed to do, what would that, how would that person feel? Would they kind of ignore the feelings uh, that they're feeling or would they speak up or what? So I kind of approached it in, in that respect. And I felt like that was how Jeff Sessions approached it. He's like, I'm out. I'm pulling the ripcord here. Uh, I'm not going to really speak out. I'm going to kind of just get out of Dodge. General Sessions, can I have a word with you? Of course, Jim. That can't happen. You're my boss. You can't get kicked out of the room so he can talk to me alone. You have to be between me and the president for the sake of the bureau. General? That was a fine briefing you gave, Jim. You know, you really are a good guy. Yeah, I'm curious what after playing him, what you kind of thought about his further capitulation to Trump during his campaign, which then he ended up losing, which like after everything he went through and after everything Trump said about him, he was still trying to suck up to Trump as he was trying to get that nomination for the Senate again. I'll be honest, like I'm really it's it's tough. I'm not used to really talking politics as a career. Like I've really tried to avoid it. And I think in these times it's very hard to. So I also don't want to dodge your question. You know, I thought it lacked courage, you know, is I guess the easiest most diplomatic way of saying it. I don't understand um, why someone would support someone that has uh, ruined them personally uh, so clearly and spoke ill of them so much. So, But I'm not Jeff Sessions, and, you know, that's his call. <laughs> so it's difficult. It's funny talking. That was one of the things I was nervous about coming on yeah, Daily Beast is because, <laughs> yeah, it's I, I've been very careful with it, you know, because of Brooklyn Nine-Nine, I have a big social media. I try to use those platforms just to encourage voting. And I'm not trying to be coy. I, I certainly, you know, lean, you know, left of center. But I grew up down in Florida. I mean, I was born in New York, but I grew up down in Florida. My parents and their friends were moderate Republicans and they were very civil. And I kind of and they also were the type of people that didn't really talk about politics or religion. And that was something that I think 
was ingrained in me for a while. Uh, you know, I've, I've made different choices since then and, and choose when to speak out about those topics. But what's a shame is that element of, yeah, there is a moderate kind of center and, and you can be a moderate Republican and still have views that aren't so extreme. And so anyway, yeah, that's why it's a little a little uncomfortable. There were definitely in this strange time where people who didn't used to speak out on things are speaking out because it's, it's so dire. You know, I saw today as we're talking, I believe it's Scientific American, the magazine had said they're endorsing a candidate for the first time in their 175 year history. And they're endorsing Joe Biden. American. Wow. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> so, you know, just one example of how things have changed. But yeah, yeah no, I mean, I understand. Yeah, well, I, th- I think it's important to speak out. You can go the other way and be silent. And I don't know if that's really the right route either. You know, without sounding alarmist, I think it's important that people really think about what they want this year. And I've always felt also that the country gets exactly the president they deserve. And I I think we've seen that in the past elections, including 2016. And so anyway, I'll say that as well. This is the Daily Beast, but this is a comedy podcast. So I do want to talk comedy with you. Yeah, great, great. Even though this is not a comedic performance that you're, you know, in 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 this film, but I really do want to go back and talk about a a lot of your other work because I've just been a fan of yours for so long, dating back to the state, of course. And so I want to just go all the way back there if we can. Please, like shoot away. Let's get after it. So for anyone who doesn't know, um, you were one of the original members of the state, this group at NYU, a sketch comedy group that then became a, a show on MTV. But can you kind of take us back to those that very beginning of, of when you joined the group at NYU? What were you where were you in your life and, and what appealed to you about that that experience and, and how it went? I was a pretty annoyingly serious dude at 17 <laughs> entering NYU film school where I thought I would end up being either De Niro, Pacino or Scorsese. And so I was pretty kind of rapid up. I've always loved film. I made them as a little kid. And so my beginnings with comedy in the state really fall squarely on Michael Showalter's shoulders, who was in the dorm room across from me and brought me to an audition that another sketch group at the school was was having. And that was kind of my introduction to the state and, and to sketch comedy. Also, as a young kid, would read Mad Magazine and I and I loved comedies, but I didn't watch a lot of SNL. I didn't really know Monty Python until my senior year of high school. Like I was a late bloomer with all that stuff. And so when I met Showalter and eventually everyone in the group, it was just kind of eye-opening and so much fun and realized that I really enjoyed being a goofball with with these people. So that was the beginnings of my comedy career was was there at NYU. Yeah, I mean, the state is so unique in the way that it, it really just birthed these careers. Unbelievable of how many people in that group went on to these incredible careers, you know, yourself included. Did you have any sense at that time that could you tell how talented everyone was and that this is something that could happen? Uh, yeah, I think I think in a gut feeling way, I think we all did because all of the people in the state are so charismatic. They've just they, they have an energy about them that's very exciting and seductive and, and inspirational. And so, no, I don't think any of us thought we were all going to have success that we end up having individually. But I think collectively we knew that there was safety in numbers and that together we also could make something that was kind of larger than ourselves. That sense was definitely there. I think we had a lot of arrogance and that comes with youth where our shit doesn't stink and we know everything. And, and I think that carried us very far. So there was a little bit of understanding what we had, but I don't think to the extent individually that it turned out to be. So you went from being in the, the group in, in college to then having this MTV show very young, which yeah. must have been a very surreal experience. So what, what do you remember about that? It was surreal and misleading because we thought it was very easy. I'm like, this is how 
works. You just get out of college and you get your own television show that you produce and write and direct and do everything for. And so, you know, it was a rude awakening when the group finally disbanded in 96, at least at that time, and then figuring out who you were outside this group, like, you know, this group identity for so long. And, you know, everyone's kind of off doing their thing. And that was um, very challenging for me, but very grateful that it eventually happened when it did, you know, at an early age. So how did you handle that when the the show got canceled, you know, after not too many episodes and you had to kind of figure out what was next? It was panic. (laughs) (laughs) There was a general kind of panic. What do do I do now? I knew I wanted to act, but, you know, there was a lot of auditioning for commercials. I kind of dove into that aspect of my career. I tried to, you know, just make money that way for a bit and get jobs here and there. And, you know, it was also a reckoning of my ego where you saw certain members of the group at that time were, were succeeding a little bit more than than I was at the time. And so I had to kind of learn a little bit of patience, but it was a little, it was rough in the beginning. And then eventually, as we all find out, it happens when it's supposed to happen and just kind of kept at it. Knew, luckily knew that I wanted to continue acting and making movies and television shows. So I didn't pull the ripcord yet. Yeah. Was there a first sort of big part that you got, either a commercial or, or something on TV that really like made a difference at that time? Well, the, I remember one of the big jobs I got that was the first job that I got outside of the work that I had done with the group and people in the group. Like Wet Hot American Summer was obviously a big event for me and every and so many people that were starting out then. Um, and that was huge. But that was also something that was created by people in the state. So I felt like as much of a part as I was of Wet Hot, it wasn't kind of my own thing. When I got a part in a movie called Beer League, which um, I still love that movie. It's very unapologetic. And Frank Sebastiano and, and Artie Lang, they did such a great job. And when I got that movie, that was like, oh, I kind of got this on my own merit. That was a big deal for me at the time. Yeah. Um, I do want to talk about Wet Hot American Summer because that's just one of my all-time favorite films really ever. And you're so great in it. So that was made by um, some members of the state, but you kind of... David Wayne and, and Michael Showalter, yeah. And they brought you in um, and met, and other members from the group to to act in it. Is that how that worked? Yeah, it was a script that they had been, that Mike and David had worked on for a bit, and we did a number of table reads for it. And I think once they got Janine Garofalo and David Hyde Pierce attached, um, they were able to get some, some money for the movie. But that was kind of like their kitchen sink script. They just wanted... Like, that was their first big one and they they're vignettes in that movie like so it was kind of sketch adjacent and yet they were creating this bigger narrative of of coop show walter's character and and other storylines so it was wonderful to see that finally materialize in that movie it was a very exciting time yeah what do you remember about the experience of shooting it because it's taken on kind of a mythical uh story with that with that documentary that came out and the everyone being at the camp together and i mean i remember it raining and i remember laughing i like the two <laughs> kind of those two images is like the mud in the rain and just laughing a lot and riffing and doing bits with like A.D. Miles and, and Amy Poehler and Ken Marino. And there were so many of us there and we were so young and it was so exciting. It was like, how did we get this money to do this? We get to do this, you know, and uh, that energy was there throughout the entire shoot. Hey, Neil, what's up? Victor abandoned the raft trip and now the kids are about to go over Devil's Canyon's Rapids. <laughs> We wanted to get back to camp. So you left campers alone on the river. Look, only Victor knows how to navigate those rapids. We gotta find him and get him back to that river. It's him! Victor! 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 We lost him! Goddamn! I got him! I got him! Where is he? He's calling from inside the camp! The only other phone is in the infirmary! 
I feel like the then the the real movie that I first noticed you in in a bigger way than that was Superbad, which was you just had this great kind of breakout performance in that where you really stole you know I think every scene that you were in, especially that first one where you uh, hit Jonah Hill with your car and have that whole uh, exchange. I have such a, a a great memory of that movie as well. You know, I'll say that I've been lucky to surround myself with people that are more talented and, and greater than I am, and and I I don't mean to be too self-effacing, but like that is kind of a a rule that. I have in picking projects. I love working with people that just are, are more experienced than I am. And, and having collaborated with the state and those guys, I knew how important collaboration is. And then, so when you get involved with people like Judd and Seth and, and all those guys, you you realize that they feel the same way. They're, they're a very collaborative bunch and they let you run with the ball. And so I think that's why that movie succeeded. And um, I had known Greg Matola before Superbad. He was a friend. And so it all, it all kind of came together in a way that was very effortless. I just was starting to um, get to know uh, Bill Hader at, at the time as well. So it was like a fun, I don't know, it was, it was a very fun group. And I was I was super nervous because that also was really, you know, that was the most I'd ever ad-libbed in, any, in anything up to that point, TV or movie. And that's just the process that those guys have. And I, I love it now. But at the time, I remember being so <laughs> nervous and just being a motor mouth. I think even Jonah Hill, his character says something, just shut up. Like, and that's, that's just real natural <laughs> energy coming out there. I just couldn't stop talking. All right, listen, I can get you alcohol. I'm going to this party right now, bro, okay? It's got booze, it's got girls. Booze and girls equals, I don't know, do you? I don't know, do you? I think you do. Do you? Yes, that's a definite yes. Yeah. Definite yes, then. Just give me one sec to talk to you. Sure, yes. yeah. Stay right here. Yeah, yeah, do what you got to do. You guys mix it over and I'll be over by the car. It's cool. Just talk it out. Hey. I'm a nice guy. Come on. It's great. What are you thinking, man? What are you doing? What? I lost Jules' money. Fogel's dead to us now. We don't have any other choices. Let's go. I don't like this idea at all. This guy's fucking creepy, man. Look at him. What? He looks like a guy. It's what guys look like. What is your problem? You guys know a guy named Jimmy? You totally look like his brother. You totally look like his brother, man. You do. Did that movie change things for you, either in terms of being recognized by people or getting cast or anything like I that? I thought they would. No. I, I mean, <laughs> I was recognized at the Home Depot. I mean, that was different. But no, you know, there's this illusion that I had at that time where that was enforced by representation at the time, too. That's saying, like, you need that one breakout role. Once you get that breakout role, it just keeps coming. And, you know, that definitely is true. And then that work got me, you know, uh, Pineapple Express, uh, you know, again, that's a judge. So I think the work that you do. I love you, man. Like, yeah. definitely breeds, you know, more work. But the idea that you have one breakout role in a movie that has a great box office and suddenly you're getting calls from people to be in things, that's not true, which is okay. You know, I always think the work should speak for itself, you know. Was the hope that it would lead to leading roles and things? and Or were you just hoping to get more sort of character actor stuff? Or Just character. I love being a character actor. I'm not. If I'm a lead, it would be in a very small independent movie, <laughs> you know, like, like I'm quite comfortable with how I'm looked at in the business and, and my strengths as an actor as well. 
well. So I didn't get too wrapped up in in that expectation. No, I just wanted all. I always thought like character actors like like Buscemi and and you know I was like, Warren Oates. These are old old actors, but I always those were the actors that I always loved. Like that you see them in all these movies and they're really authentic and great to watch. That was what I was trying to model the film career after. I mean, the Comey rule has you know has given you this opportunity to do something more dramatic, which is is not something you've had you've gotten to do that much. Did you feel like you got kind of got stuck in the comedy thing, or did you did you like being in that lane? Or no, I like that lane. I'm I'm very comfortable in that lane, but I'm grateful for you know this role in the Comey rule. And you know, I did a small movie called Here a While by a great writer director Tim True that I did that hasn't been seen a lot. But like I'm finding these small parts to kind of step gently into like dramatic stuff. But look, I, I mean, I know what I'm good at. I love comedy. I think that is something that I'll always uh, want to do. And it's certainly my strength, but I love the opportunity of doing different stuff like that. You mentioned a sort of competitive thing with members of the state, right? Especially right after the, the series got canceled. Do you still feel that in a sense of, of the people who you used to work with? No, like truly, like I am so excited. I'm realizing that there's, there's abundance. There's just plenty to go around. You know, that's kind of something that I've been reminding myself of lately. And it's true. The fact that Carrie Kenny is up for an Emmy for Reno, I, I couldn't be more excited about in the show Tom and Ben and Carrie created Reno. Like that excites me, like seeing that that success from knowing them at 17 to where they are now. Like I, I'm genuinely really happy for them and to be part of a show like that. So the competitiveness has waned, certainly in terms of the members of the state. Coming up, Joe shares some eye-opening details about how Brooklyn Nine-Nine will address the George Floyd protests in its upcoming eighth season. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. So, I mean, we have to talk about Brooklyn Nine-Nine, which I think now is the thing that you've become best known for and has been running for, for quite a while. It was really your first regular role in a, in a long-running series, right, that's lasted this long? That's lasted this long, yeah. 
was really happy to, it's the dream of every actor to, to be in a show like this that lasts as long and has such a strong supporting cast and most importantly, terrific leadership at the top and in the writer's rooms. And so, yeah, it was one of those projects that, not that it came out of nowhere, but I didn't expect this type of success. I, we all got along from the get-go, and um, but you never really know how the show is going to work with, with audiences. Is it true that you almost didn't audition for it or, or didn't go back in for the second audition? Yeah, I was, again, kind of getting back to that ego conversation. You know, at the time, I think I was just getting tired of auditioning and wanted things handed to me. And it's just... My not how it works. So it was kind of a lesson in humility. And I, and I realized that this, I wasn't going to get the job if I didn't go in. And I'm really glad that I did because you just cut yourself off to so many things when you don't do that. So it was something I almost missed. And I thank all the people that were around me saying, don't be an idiot. Get, <laughs> yeah. get in there. And this is how it works, you know? Thank you both so much for coming in. This is a safe space where choices are welcome. Okay, now I trust that both of you had a chance to review the script. Yeah. Good. Now, throw them away. What the hell? I wrote notes in the margin. Terry Bond is super objective. I want to see you improvise without the safety net. I want to see you become Maxwell Blaze. And so what has the experience of being on that show and becoming even more well-recognized for it been like for you? I've always been a little wary of celebrity being recognized, but it's been really nice because I'm finding when I am recognized for Brooklyn, often what I hear is, you know, we watch this show with the whole family. It's one of the only shows that we do that with. And, you know, that's definitely I wear it's like a, a badge of honor. I think the whole cast does. People love it. It goes across many ages. And so being recognized for that has been quite rewarding actually. No no downsides to fame so far? Or? Uh, <laughs> I mean, no, not yet. I've got nothing really to complain. I, I find I was listening to your podcast with Richard Kine, who's a friend of mine, and he was saying, you guys were talking about this, and, and I started laughing because I agreed with it, which is like, it's that level of fame that like maybe gets you into the restaurant a little bit sooner or free dessert from the chef, but you're able to kind of walk down the street and maybe you notice a couple of heads turns and then whispers whoever they're with, but you're you're not swamped by people. And that's exactly how I, I love it because I do like to get out and I do like people. I think that's the other thing. I do like talking to folks. And so, you know, I'm able to handle a lot of the people that come up to me. And also there's a certain type of fan that watches Brooklyn or the state or Wet Hot. You know, they're quite, I think, calm in their reaction. They're not over the top. Sure, you have less interaction with, with people these days, but did you have that thing of people coming up to you and, and saying, trying to figure out how they know you? Oh, plenty of times. Yeah, I'm definitely that guy, you yeah. know, which is okay. <laughs> like, you're that guy, and then it only gets awkward where they, where you see them struggling and, you know, be like, super bad, and like, no, and, the, and then you, yeah, you end yeah, up trying yeah. to list your entire <laughs> resume, which is very uncomfortable, so I usually drop it at, well, it was good to meet you, man. <laughs> Great day. <laughs> so what's what's going on with Brooklyn Nine Nine now? Are you with the um, shooting? We're and... uh, we're slated to go back uh, November second. I think is when production is supposed to start up again. I know the writers have had their hands full navigating large events that have been happening, beginning with, of course, the pandemic back in March and starting on scripts then, and then the murder of George Floyd threw all those scripts out the the window, and and now they were onto something else. So I'm glad that the show is being currently
current and being very aware of the climate that we're doing these shows. So that that's kind of where it is. I think we'll be addressing a lot of those issues in the upcoming season. I know. I'm sure you don't want to have any spoilers or anything, but it's... I don't even know. It's it's not <laughs> like I have. You haven't no, seen honestly, the scripts. Not, yeah, we haven't. We really haven't seen the scripts. And Dan has met with each of us individually to kind of talk about ideas that they've had about the characters and arcs that they had, but no um, real specific storylines yet. So it'll be exciting once we start getting to see where where we're leading. What were those conversations like, especially, you know, around these issues of what it means to portray police on TV now? The conversations revolved about what we want, how we want to go about saying, talking about these issues. And so much of it was, let's realize that we're walking through a door now and there's, we can't walk back into the old room. Like we're moving forward so that I know I'm being very esoteric, but the approach was, look, it's a different world now. And in this show, we need to honor the fact that it is a comedy that we do want to entertain, but we also don't want to seem tone deaf. And so those conversations had a lot to do with how can we make these characters grow, which has always been a strength of the show, in a way that also addresses these issues that are growing outside. It's really interesting, just because, especially from a comedic standpoint, because you could imagine kind of how Law & Order or shows like that might handle this, and they can kind of go at it in a very direct way. But, you know, there's an obligation for Brooklyn Nine-Nine to stay funny. There is. There's an obligation for us to stay funny, but I think there's also an obligation for us to kind of address in a very real way being a cop show. Dan Gore and the other producers had the foresight to work with a a terrific group called Color of Change that is kind of bringing some of these issues to writers' rooms. And I think that's really important. I I think that's one way to address, yes, let's be entertaining, but but also there's there's an opportunity. It's not even a responsibility, although some may argue that there is and they wouldn't be wrong. But there's just, you know, an opportunity to introduce these other perspectives on these issues. You mentioned your the characters, you know, really do change and evolve on this show. And I again, it's it's this is the longest you've ever played the same characters. So what has that been like to have to play someone for this long and and change with them and grow with them? And how do you do that? Well, it's been nice to see where Charles Boyle goes as an actor playing the same character, it's wonderful. And then after a while, you're like, I feel like I'm hitting a wall. And then, (laughs) and that's very natural. And that's okay. Like, I know it's the second time I'll quote Rich Kind, but I remember when I got Brooklyn and we were on for maybe three seasons and I ran into him and he's like, you're doing a fantastic job uh, on the show. (laughs) Great, wonderful work. And listen, when it's all over, Joe, you're going to get good again. You know, and and I started (laughs) laughing. And his point was, you've talked to him, you know how great the guy is. And he was, uh, what he was saying is like, you get as an actor, you get, you, you have shortcuts and you get into a, in a routine where you don't really have to work as hard to really create this character. And, and he's right. When you play a character for that long, you kind of get stuck with that. However, with Boyle and the fact that the writers really let him grow, it's been a little bit easier. You know, in the beginning of that series, Boyle was stalker adjacent with his relationship with Rosa and, and completely, you know, not taking no for an answer. And the writers have been able to really steer his character in a direction that's been a lot more responsible and able to kind of nourish a a much healthier relationship with. So it's been nice in that way to see like, wow, you know, Boyle can change. Boyle can be a different guy. That's an important lesson, especially around the conversation with police that people are capable of change because sometimes we don't look at it that way. Yeah, that's a great point. The other thing I wanted to ask you about, just because I saw it on your IMDb, is you have a movie that you are writing 
writing and direct. What's the status of that? Yeah, yeah. That was the first half of the uh, pandemic revolved around getting that prepped. And ultimately, we had to pull the plug. But I've always been a horror movie fan since I was a little kid, a lot of Stephen King and a lot of Fangoria magazine. And um, so this particular movie is one that I wrote that takes place uh, in Mountain. It's called Outpost, and it's about an abuse survivor who goes out in the middle of nowhere to kind of get some self-recovery and ends up, bad things happen, ends up kind of spinning out and seeing some things that aren't there. So that's something that I've been working on for a couple of years, and we were very close to going into production in Idaho. We had to, we had to pull the plug. Not a comedy. Not a comedy. This is a straight horror movie, yeah. <laughs> and it's your wife is supposed to star in it? Yeah, Beth Dover is, is starring as well. So it, it's been wonderful to kind of gather all the, the crew and the department heads and looking at you know this responsibility that I have as also a producer and a financier to bring in new people, people that I haven't met, and in particular, uh, women. The movie is about domestic abuse, and I'm a middle-aged white guy. I have no business like talking about that topic, and so I'm approaching that story from kind of a different angle. You know, I'm not really approaching it as someone that has anything relevant to say on domestic abuse, but rather on someone that is too stubborn to find help for themselves, and therefore, and so a lot of people end up getting hurt from it, you know. So is the hope that you'll be able to get that back up and running? Yeah, I think we're going to push till next summer and hopefully we'll be able to get out there with my DP and, and do another location scout. I had gone there last summer to check out the tower. It takes place on this fire tower and it's just beautiful. It's 6,000 feet up, but it's like kind of a Fitzcarraldo type of attempt here of a movie. Like we're going to try to make this on the top <laughs> of a mountain here and let's see if we can do it. But that's exciting. I love challenges like that. So hopefully we'll get out there with my DP and, and figure out some shots if, if the place doesn't burn down. If you're shooting outside a lot, that's also helpful for uh, for COVID. Yeah, no doubt. Yeah, I mean, the logistics, I can't even imagine of, of doing a show like Brooklyn Nine-Nine and trying to keep everybody safe. I'm sure, you know, it's not your job to figure that out, but you're invested in whether it, how it goes. Yeah, I mean, they'll do uh, their due diligence for sure. I imagine there'll be some type of bubble zones going on. As far as like the movie, yeah, that was something that the producers and I were constantly uh, maneuvering. And ultimately, one of the reasons why we had to like pull the plug, you know, because Idaho at the time was doing okay in terms of COVID cases, but then some things were developing with locations that were causing us to have to travel too far to the location, which opened us up to exposure. But anyway, I think Brooklyn Nine-Nine is is certainly going to be able to handle keeping us all safe. Mm -hmm. So we end every episode by asking our guests, um, is there a time that you can remember laughing really, really hard, either maybe on set with people or sort of in your in your comedy life that, that really that stands out that you really remember laughing hard? Oh, man. I'll say that there was a Halloween episode episode um, on Brooklyn Nine-Nine where Boyle is coming into the break room in different costumes. And I remember laughing. There was one costume that I might have been the big apricot that I'm in, that Boyle is in. But I remember all of us laughing so hard because it all just seemed so ridiculous, like that moment, like what we were all doing. <laughs> and Boyle was kind of like pointing at himself and laughing. And it ended up kind of moving past the character and into like me just pointing at myself, <laughs> looking at how stupid I look right now. And we all just really were, couldn't stop. We just kept hitching. And that was a great one. That's probably one of those moments where you say, I can't believe that I, this is what I do for a living. This is what I do for a living. It was exactly that moment. And uh, I think everyone was kind of <laughs> feeling that. <laughs> 
<laughs> well, I hope you can get back to it uh, soon and um, and start making more more episodes and more stuff and and good luck with the movie as well. Thanks, Matt. It's been a real pleasure talking to you, and um, thanks for inviting me on. Yeah, this has thanks been awesome. for listening to the podcast. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> All right, great to meet you. I'll uh, great to meet talk you. to you again sometime soon. Hope so. Bye, Matt. Bye. Thank you so much to Joe Lotrulio for being my guest on today's show. And apologies to my good friend Jay for not asking Joe about how much you two look like each other. Next time. The Comey Rule will premiere on two consecutive nights on Showtime starting this Sunday, September 27th. And look out for the eighth season of Brooklyn Nine-Nine returning to NBC sometime next year. And hey, how about giving this podcast a rating and review on Apple Podcasts? We want as many people to hear this show as possible, and you can help by spreading the word and sharing it with your friends. You can find me on Twitter at Matt Wilstein and at TheDailyBeast.com. And if you're not already, please follow at LastLaughPod on Instagram, where you can see photos and videos from all of our episodes. The Last Laugh is distributed by Acast for The Daily Beast, with audio production by Jesse Cannon. Our theme music is by Claude, who you can find on Instagram at claude.mp3. You can find this show every week on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. And as always, you can find show notes and highlights from each episode on thedailybeast.com. See you next week.